few years ago, kind of right before actual COVID, got to go visit uh, one of our missionary partners uh, in, um, they were doing language work in, in Jordan. And so I uh, got to go over there. And uh, while there, uh, it was during Ramadan. And so it was this uh, week of um, being there and not being able to eat during the day, uh, which is not fun. Uh, but uh, the evenings included these, these, these massive like, celebration meals. They're incredible. And so our partners had uh, arranged a, um, a meal with a family that was actually refugees from Syria at the time. Uh, so Syria was going through all of its wars, and so Syrian refugees were in, in, in Jordan. And so uh, we were going to go have this dinner with the refugee family from Jordan. Now, I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know what to expect out of the whole situation. Uh, but here's a picture of all of us sitting down having this meal. Uh, it was great. Uh, Brian Moles uh, there with me. So if you guys were here years ago, Brian used to be our worship person. Uh, and then on the far right is the father of the family and his son. Uh, and so, um, but... Uh, the family didn't really speak any English, so we relied on our, our missionary partner to do some translating for us. Uh, and um, he is not the best at Arabic, uh, so it was a bit of a, a, a hard work for us. His wife is m- much better at Arabic, uh, but the problem is, because of cultural codes, all the men were in one room and all the women were in another room, so uh, we had to try our best. And, um, and so there were all these parts of it that were, that were challenges, but... This family just brought out this tremendous spread of food. Just, I mean, that's, that's just a, one moment of a multi-part meal. And it was amazing. It was so, so good. Other than this little black drink that out of the hospitality person in me, I'm like, I have to finish this to honor this family. But it was awful. Um, and then our missionary partner's like, you didn't have to finish that. I'm like, thanks. Thanks for letting me know now. But... Um, it was just this tremendous sort of celebration. And I was blown away, just sort of the love and the care that this family kind of put into welcoming us, helping us feel like family, feel like we are home for a family meal with the kids and everything. And despite language barriers, despite cultural differences, and despite like circumstances difference, like these are what, what I'm experiencing in the States and what these refugees are experiencing is just so far apart. Yeah, there was this tremendous moment in this moment of hospitality of like this, sh- this shared family dynamic. It was incredible. Unless we forget, Jesus is in the midst of a chapter and a half almost of kind of a, a speech. Uh, he has these five like massive texts throughout Matthew of him speaking, and this is one of those. And he has already hit on sort of hospitality a bit as a, as a idea, as a theme. And I think we, we see that again in these texts, but we'll unpack that as we go because let, let's, let's retrace where we've been in this sort of long speech. Jesus has looked out upon this crowd and, and sees them and, and, and feels sort of this, this, he has this almost guttural reaction, uh, the way the language works, a uh, uh, feeling like these people are like sheep without a shepherd, that they're being sort of abused or harassed and likely from the religious leadership at this moment in time. And so Jesus goes, well, pray for workers to the harvest. There's, there's something to be harvested now. Let, let's pray for that. And then what does he do in the very next moment? What was that? He sends out his own people. He's like, so let's, let's pray for the harvest. Hey, you guys, go. I'm going to send you out. 
and I'm going to send you out. And he says, to the lost sheep of Israel. It's the very thing that he just uh, spoke over. And so he sends all of his people to the lost sheep. He says, don't bring a bunch of stuff, uh, but go and proclaim uh, the good news of the kingdom, that the kingdom has drawn near. The kingdom is like imminent. It's, it's re- ready to be grasped and, and do the things I've been doing, cast out demons, heal people, all this amazing stuff. And who wouldn't want that, right? Well, apparently there's plenty. And so they go, and he says, go to the Israelite brothers and sisters, those who claim Yahweh's name, who should be doing the things of Yahweh, and some of them are going to welcome you. You're going to go to these places that are going to be welcoming. They're going to show you hospitality. They're going to treat you as God's people are supposed to be treating sojourners and strangers. They're going to do the things that God has called them to actually be. And when you get there, let your shalom, let your peace be upon those houses. But there's also going to be some people who don't welcome you at all. That the message you're bringing that about this kingdom, uh, uh, what it's about, and not only that, but who it's about, the sort of upside-down nature of this, of this kingdom that Jesus is speaking on, not everyone's going to be on board with this. And not only that, but not, not only will they not just be on board with that, there's going to be some who actively work against it. So they're going to be like wolves. You're like sheep, and they're going to be like wolves. And they're going to beat you or flog you, might even kill you, but don't be afraid of that. Like, our bodies are perishing. All they can do is kill a body just earlier than you expect. Don't be afraid of that. And, and know that you have a God who loves you, you, even if they could kill the body. You have a God who, who loves your soul. But there is a real enemy that could kill your soul. Watch out for that. So these persecutions might come. And then he has these instructions that we sort of close out this chapter with. And I think it's three-part. First, to... It's, there's some prioritization that Jesus wants out of his disciples uh, around what is first and foremost. Um, and then that, that the expectation that uh, some of this is still going to happen. And then lastly, uh, a bit of a call to the kind of disciples they're meant to be. So let's look at this prioritization. It starts at verse 32 right away. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. Whoever denies me before men, I will also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. So once again, on the back of the don't fear those who kill the body, Jesus also makes a statement too. So, so don't deny me to others. Now, it can feel very heavy-handed because it is. Um, I, there's no softening sort of Jesus' languages here, nor should we. But remember, Jesus is speaking of, his, of his, him as a king and his kingdom. That's the message he came to bring. That's what Matthew says right away. He went around everywhere speaking on his kingdom. He's a king. And with kingdoms, you have an allegiance. That's, that's what it is. Like you, you have an allegiance to, to who the king is. This is a heavily honor-shame world that Jesus is navigating. And so there's so much language around allegiances. And Jesus is giving gravity, seriousness to this moment. As if to say, look, if you're going to be kingdom messengers, if you're going to represent me as your king, declare me as Messiah, as king, then I need you to be all in on this. You can't just go as the king's messengers and then suddenly be like, hey, I don't really know that king. When the rubber meets the road, don't take my name in vain, right? So like the Old Testament, when we say, don't take the Lord's name in vain, what we don't mean is like you stubbed your toe and you said Jesus when you did that. Uh, the, the concept is so much more than that, of, of people that would be the representation of God and yet do it in, in vain, in, in vanity, that they would not actually live out that representation. And, and I think Jesus is telling his disciples the same thing here. Look, you're, you're my ambassadors. So 
I don't want you to deny your citizenship should the rubber meet the road. Like, I need you all in on this. He's serious about it. He says, whoever loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son and daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now, it's important, too, to remember um, some of the context. So rabbi-disciple relationships are extremely intense. Rabbis actually had more legal status over the disciples than parents actually had over children. So when a, when a family said, go, you can be now a student of this particular rabbi, the rabbi would take on their taxes, the rabbi would take on all the responsibilities to care for and uh, some of that in, in legal standing. And so there was a certain allegiance that was had of a rabbi-disciple relationship. And I think Jesus is speaking into that as well. So it's not Jesus is being mean and telling us not to love our parents or anything like that. That's not, it's not at all the context. Um, but it is very much going, look, when you sign up to be a disciple, I need you to know this is an all-in kind of experience. Like your primary head allegiance is here. That's the point. And there's going to be all sorts of challenges to that, of where our allegiances lie, where our uh, emotions lie. Disciples. And some of those are simply about a prioritization of things. I think C.S. Lewis talks a lot about this as a concept says it would seem, this is a famous quote from him, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition while infinite joy is offered to us. And I think Jesus is inviting his people into the same thing. He says, look, like, what I'm offering is eternal life, life abundant, a reordering of your desires. If you're going to be a disciple of me, that is what's on the table but that I need your desires to be how I design your desires, not mixed up all the time. And it's an invitation into that. He's reordering it. And hear me, he's not setting the bar as a disciple to be some sort of super high level obedience, right? It's not what he says. He's not setting the bar based upon sin management. He's not like, all right, if you're, if you're really gonna be my disciple, here's all the to-do lists that I need you to do. That's not what he's doing. Not his teaching. He didn't say, look, I need you to love my teaching more than your father and mother. But he says himself. One way to think about this, uh, I think sometimes, is, is relationships that we have. Um, maybe like marriage. Or, and it could even kind of be like dating. Spouses in this room. Have you perfectly nailed what it looks like to do all the things your spouse desires for you all the time? Somebody in the previous service said yes, which is crazy. <laughs> And I'm like, I think your spouse would disagree with that. But no, of course not. Does that change whether we are all in on our spouse? No. And I think Jesus' invitation is the same way here. Jesus is saying, look, I need you to know that, that I am your first commitment. Now, does that mean you're going to nail it? Does that mean you're going to get all this right? No. Because your first commitment is to me, not everything I've told you to go do. It's to me. It's going to be a roller coaster. But in following Jesus, we, we take on that commitment. And we're going to struggle along the way. But we keep our direction. We keep toward-ing, towards Jesus no matter what. So we experience setbacks. Yet we're going to see Jesus as faithful. We encounter moments of actual obedience. And we're going to find those things to be sweet in those moments. We're in moments of anger with God. And yet we'll find him patient with us. That's how it is. It's like the development of anyone that we love, but particularly when we make a commitment and say, no, I'm all in with you. It's a, it's a long and steady reordering of our desires for the sake of the other. 
But how far does this go? Verse 38, and whoever does not take his cross, uh, t- does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now, I, asked, I mentioned this before. How much would Jesus's crowd understand what Jesus is talking about related to the cross? Yeah, like none, especially in Matthew's teaching so far, right? We, we have not encountered Jesus really talk about the cross at all. So Jesus is saying, unless you take your cross, it's like, oh, okay. It seems peculiar. Now, Matthew, Matthew's audience might be a little different than Jesus' audience here, but we'll deal with that. But we have to remember the expectation of the Messiah for so much was, in a lot of ways, militaristic. There was a military understanding that uh, there was going to be an overthrow of Rome when the Messiah comes. They will reestablish the peace of Israel and everything will be amazing again. And so perhaps what they would hear is, you must be willing to die for the cause. Jesus, Jesus, if you're a Messiah and you're saying, we're going to go to war with Rome at some point, and that's the expectation. Not that Jesus said that, but that, that would be the expectation then yes, some of us might end up on the cross as part of an overthrow of Rome. I can't imagine all of us are going to get out of this alive. Cool. That's probably what Jesus' audience would initially hear around this concept. And remember, they have a template for this. 150 years before this, the the Jews went to war, right? I know most of us are Protestants. We don't read this section of our Bibles uh, because we don't have it in there. Um, But... If you go back about 150 years, we would have this section of the Bible. And so there's a whole section called the Maccabees, but publishers decided it's a lot cheaper not to print those sections. Anyway, that's a lot of reasons why we don't have it. So um, we end up not with this middle section. And it's tremendous history. And so Israel went to war against the Gentiles, these Greeks. They, they, they won. That's how we get Hanukkah and some of the stories there. They won. It's tremendous. And, and the family of the Maccabees like, are the greatest. And so they are the war heroes. Uh, for the Israelites, like they are the revolutionaries. So the George Washingtons to their country, whatever analogy you want to use. And, and their war stories were still told up to Jesus's day as like, these are the heroes. So when Jesus comes around, there was a lot of expectation for him to be this certain kind of revolutionary. Now, Matthew would be writing to people that are hearing this a little bit differently. Some that have heard, some that know that Jesus has died, he end up on the cross himself. And so as they hear it, and as they hear about Matthew talk about this kingdom, they're also going to perceive it very differently as well. Because Jesus' cross was a bit of a real struggle for many. I mean, Paul will talk about this, just how much of a stumbling block the cross itself was because it's so upside down. Because we have a king who embodies the kingdom through things like acts of service and hospitality, who says, I didn't come to be served, which is what every king does, but to serve others and to give my life. It includes a way of suffering. It should be strange to us that the coronation of the king, and Matthew will do this probably more, maybe Mark does it a little bit more, the coronation of Jesus in the storyline is at his cross as he dies. And on the other side is glory. And we have a king who has solidarity with humanity in our sin and suffering, who didn't have to condescend to us, but chose to, and yet invites us to resurrection and life in the midst of the ashes. It's such a counter message to what Rome or what most of Israel was thinking. Like, it should, it should make us laugh a little bit that we come together weekly around a communion table. And what we do at this table is go, our king died. Not long live the king, it was our king died. Now that's, no one does that. 
When the king dies, it's like not the thing you celebrate. And what's weird is that Jesus didn't give us the Easter things to practice. He didn't say, hey, when you guys get together for church stuff, build a little tomb and everybody kind of walk in and walk out. That's not, that's not what happens. He doesn't give us the Easter sign. He actually gave us the Friday sign and says, hey, do this and remember it to me. So every time we proclaim, our, our God died. Our king died. And it was probably puzzling to the early church or to the early uh, Romans to be like, hey, you guys are getting together and you're, 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 you take his blood and body because he died on a cross. It's like, what? It was confusing. But that's what we do. Now, hear me. Included in that is the forgiveness of sins and everything else as part of the package. I'm not saying that all we do here is simply declare he died. He died to accomplish something, and that's really important. Accomplish atonement, one of the big theological words we like to use. And just to very simplify it for you, it's the at-one-ment. It's the taking things that are unreconciled and making them reconciled. That's all atonement is. So when you hear the word atonement, that's essentially what it means. And so we do celebrate that at the table as well. But it is very upside down. And the early church got accused of being cannibals from the outside world of, about their practices because it's strange. So Jesus says, all right, don't be surprised that this all stuff is coming to you. Verse 34, do not think that I have come to bring peace to earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Now, most people, I would argue, uh, tend to quote this a bit out of context. Um, use it as an aggressive posture of like, I could be jerks with the gospel because Jesus came to bring a sword or something along those lines. Um, or, or they'll take it, uh, Raza Aslan wrote a pretty famous book five or six years ago called Zealot. Uh, some of you have read it, great. Um, it's, it's awful, but um, it's taking a few verses uh, of Jesus' slightly militaristic language and go, clearly Jesus was a zealot and ignoring like 80% of everything else Jesus said. Um, but... Uh, some will take it that way as well. Now, hear me. I would argue his, his disciples might have taken it that way because they're going to hear that there's this militaristic Messiah that everybody's waiting for, and Jesus goes, hey, I've come with a sword. And I'm sure a lot of his disciples are like, great. Like, that's what we want to hear, Jesus. Let's go to war. Let's take out the Romans. Let's do this thing. Let's overthrow this because we're going to see in the very next section in John, John, I think, struggle with this very thing uh, around what kind of Messiah he's going to bring. And so, yes, let's kick out the Romans, Jesus. Let's go do this thing. And then Jesus goes on, for I have not come, for I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against his mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. And I'm sure his disciples are like, what? I like the sword part. I didn't like the follow-up. The sword was against Rome. I'm all for it, Jesus. But not, not this. And it's peculiar because Jesus is also quoting Micah. Uh, that, that whole, the whole uh, verse 35 and 36 is, is a quote straight out of the book of Micah. And I think it helps shape how we should interpret this section to, to look there. Now remember, when an Old Testament is quoted, we've talked about this multiple times in Matthew, there's no verse or chapter numbers uh, in their time. And so, and not only that, but making copies of parchment, uh, you're not going to copy like a chapter and a half of Micah to, to bring out the context. And so a singular quote was how you would quote Old Testament as a way to go, 
understand the context of where that quote comes from as well. So let's pick up. We'll look at Micah. Micah uh, was a prophet to the southern kingdom, kind of right before uh, the kingdom started falling. So he's one of the early, early prophets. Spoke to the southern kingdom, just about things they're doing, idolatry kind of early in the book, and then all sorts of injustices. People are taking fields from other people. They're treating people really poorly. All this stuff's going on in Micah's time. And Micah's saying, look, unless things shape up, God, God's got some God's got some response to all this. So Micah 6, uh, we'll start in Micah 6 and then get into Micah 7. So we'll start with a, a more famous passage. Uh, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? So how, can we, how, can, how should I worship God? God, how should I respond to you? Should I do the stuff that you've told us to do? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn, so even to my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And he has told you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? Which should sound a whole lot like the Hosea quote from the previous chapter of Matthew, right? Jesus quotes Matthew, and what does he say? I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And Micah's saying the same thing, Right? Should I bring all these sacrifices to you? Should I bring all these bulls and rams and oils, even my firstborn? And Micah's like, that's not what our God ultimately desires. He wants mercy and justice, kindness, humility. And before we think this, this is an Old Testament concept. I mean, Paul does this in 1 Corinthians as well, right? This is how Paul speaks of love. Look, you can, you can come to church, you can tithe well, you can read your Bible all you want. You can speak in tongues, you can pray regularly, have a good Christian household with good devotionals. You can nail doctrine all day long. But if that doesn't lead to being a person of love, it's noise. It, it's, it's nothing. And I think that's what he's after. That the outcome would be a people of mercy and justice and kindness and humility or love. And if we're not becoming those sort of people, then something went wrong along the way. And the rest of Micah includes essentially telling them how much the people are missing the boat on justice and kindness and humility. And Micah will go on to say the best of them is like a briar. The most upright of them is a thornhenge. So that's how bad things have gotten, right? Briars and thornhenges, I guess. And the day of your watchman, of your punishment, has come. Now their confusion is at hand. Put no trust in the neighbor. Put no confidence to a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth and from her who lies in your arms. Here's the quote. For the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises against her mother. Daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And as man's enemies are the men of his own house. So they were not acting justly. They were not loving mercy. And the day of the watchman, uh, which is one way to translate, but the, the Hebrew is a little bit um, nuanced here. The NIV, I think, translates it pretty well. The day God has visited you has come. And I think this is where Jesus is picking up the language. Say, I, I've come. I've come now. And as part of me coming, just like the part of God coming in all these moments, it, it's going to bring some division. But it's important to also note what comes next. Because we get Micah's perspective too. So God's coming to bring a response to the injustices that exist. And then Micah's next line is, but as for me, Micah, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation and God will hear me. And I think Jesus is simply, by quoting Micah, and I, by bringing this analogy in, simply saying, so disciples, go into the world. Go to your thing. Proclaim the kingdom that is drawn close. Show the signs of what the kingdom is like. But remember, the world right now is experiencing injustice. 
They're like sheep without a shepherd that are being harassed. There's rejection. There's unfaithfulness. There's hostility. There are those who are harassing the lost sheep. And when I come, and when my kingdom comes, there is some judgment. There is some justice towards those things. There is some vengeance. But vengeance belongs to the Lord. It's as if Jesus is saying, leave that part for me, but, but be like Micah. Our job is not the sword. Our job is faithfulness. Jesus, like God in Malachi, will deal with the rejection, the unfaithful, the hostility. He'll deal with those. But for us to be faithful and to wait and to be expectant. He's the sword bearer, not us. And so the instructions then is to go live it out, right? Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me is him who sent me. Uh, The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. So there's some language here that's similar to what we encountered in the Sermon on the Mount around rewards. Uh, And that is, um, it uses, it's so technical, but it uses a middle voice as opposed to a passive voice around the receiving of a rewards. The passive voice implies something kind of far off in the future, but the middle voice actually tends to be like directly connected, like if then direct results. So if I eat this, I will be full. And so these rewards actually should carry with them a bit of an immediateness, not just rewards in heaven, some of that kind of language. I think there's rewards language now. Now, this whole section, this whole chapter and a half has had some positive connections to Jesus's positive actions. We've seen the negative actions around those who persecute and reject and flog, all this kind of stuff. But what is the thing that brings peace into people's households? And what is the piece of obedience that disciples are to be on the lookout for? It's connected to my opening story. Hospitality. It comes up a lot in this whole section of Jesus's speaking. Speaking. It's the very nature of hospitality, the very nature of this, this crucial piece, I would argue, of so much of Jesus' kingdom. It's, it's what helped define Abraham and Sarah, right? Who go out of their way to welcome these total strangers. It is a constant drumbeat in scripture. It's how Isaac finds a wife, through the hospitality of others. It's how Moses finds a new family in Jethro out of the hospitality of others. It's constant in scripture. And we can see this. Jesus sends his disciples to act on behalf, and those who receive him receive Jesus. And in receiving Jesus, they receive God, the one who sends him. There's, there's literally a, a word for this in, in Hebrew called uh, shaliach. It's this idea that uh, if you receive someone, it's as if you receive the man himself. If you receive a messenger of a man, it's as if you receive the man himself. And they're sent out as representatives, and it's like receiving the king himself. The Messiah sent me here. It's like, oh, Receiving you is like receiving the Messiah into my household in this moment. But take this whole section of receiving, and especially the cup of water, it's like very practical. And I would argue, related to the rewards then, that the way you live is going to produce a certain kind of reward. It's, it's a bit proverbial, right? The book of Proverbs has stuff like this all over it. If you want to be a person of humility, mercy, hospitality, justice, there's rewards that are reaped as part of that world. If it's going to be a lifestyle of turning people away, of rejection, of isolation, of judgment and exclusivism, there are certain outcomes to that life. So disciples, 
be aware of how you go about this mission. That's the instructions. Now hear me. I think there's so much lost in the, in the church right now around really shooting for ends and not giving a rip about the means to get there. It's like if mean, uh, the ends of certain governmental powers, the ends of certain amounts of salvations or something like that. And the means which Jesus has given us so many instructions on. It's not like we open our Bibles and suddenly get to, to Good Friday and that's the story. Like we have so much of Jesus going, here's how I want you to operate. And the means matter to God. They matter to Paul a lot too. We'll deal with that if we ever go back to a letter of Paul's. But the means matter. And Jesus is like, I, I want you to be a certain kind of people as you go out and do this message. And, and the message might divide people. Let the sword part of that be up to me. But there's a certain kind of people I need you to be. And a people of hospitality. And to live that way. Henry Nouwen says hospitality means primarily the creation of a free space where the stranger can enter and become a friend instead of an enemy. Hospitality is not to change people, but to offer them space where change can take place. I love that quote. Because then it's not primarily about offering a meal. It's not primarily about opening your house. It's about offering space, making space, making relationship where enemies can become friends, where relational and spiritual change can take place. That's hospitality. It's a posture of welcoming people. And it becomes a good question for us as a church. Do we want to be known for who we're against or, or who we're for? Do we want to be known for who we curse or who we seek to bless? Do we want to be known for protesting or do we want to be known for giving a cold cup of water to those in Jesus' name? Exclusive or welcoming? It's important questions. So to conclude, we have to remember who we've received for hospitality from first. We have a God who, as, the Psalm, as Psalm 23 would say, prepares a table for us. He's the one who shows hospitality for us first. A God who welcomes us in while we were yet sinners. It blew people's mind for Jesus to constantly sit down and eat with sinners. With those that everyone thought they're outside, they're not included, they're not a part of this thing. And Jesus is like, no, that's not true. It's a position, and as the one who receives humility, it's a, or uh, hospitality is a position of humility to receive. It, it was humbling to have this family who probably had close to nothing to pour themselves out for us and to receive that. It's humili- it, it, it's, there's a humility to that to offer the acceptance of their sacrifice and their efforts that they poured into that day uh, for us. We come to Jesus with nothing and fully accept his welcome and his hospitality and all that he sacrificed to bring us into the family at the cross. It's a unique message that he invites sinners, that we dine with a king who speaks of servanthood more than he speaks of power and position. We're invited to a banquet that defies all expectations and invites us then to turn, to repent from our self-seeking ways and to follow his selfless ways. And a kingdom that's just going to be a challenge for many to get and to understand and some will war against it, especially the religious, the powerful, the excluders, the rejectors, and the persecutors. But to be real, it's still a challenge for most of us too. We really love to build our own kingdoms instead of operating out of God's kingdom. 
And it's a message that not all are going to receive. But because of this message, and because of our practice of hospitality, our practice of loving our enemies, our practice of showing mercy to others, our practice of forgiving someone else and absorbing their sin into our lives by forgiving them, of letting love cover a multitude of sins, this is what we're invited into, and it is the message itself. Rosaria Butterfield in Gospel Comes with the House Key, which is a tremendous book, um, said, radically ordinary hospitality shows this skeptical post-Christian world what authentic Christianity looks like. And she goes on to say, let God use your home, your apartment, your dorm room, your front yard, your community gymnasium or garden for the purpose of making strangers into neighbors and neighbors into family, because that is the point, building the church and living like a family, the family of God. And Jesus says it could be simple as a glass of water. What kind of people are we going to be? Radically ordinary and daily hospitality are just the basic building blocks. So start anywhere, whatever it may be. But let's start.